It's time for Lawyers for Jesus, a show about the dynamic and exciting interaction of faith and the law. Featuring the attorneys from the law firm Malkin Baker in downtown Chicago. Malkin Baker is nationally known for defending freedom and for serving the people of faith. And now, Lawyers for Jesus. Hello, welcome to Lawyers for Jesus. I'm Whit Brisky, an attorney at the law firm of Malkin Baker in Chicago. We are Christian attorneys who focus on serving the body of Christ with its legal needs. To learn more about us, go to maukbaker.com, that's M-A-U-C-K-B-A-K-E-R.com, or call 312-726-1243. What is the importance of ethics uh, for lawyers? And are lawyers allowed to talk with clients about concerns beyond their legal needs? Today, I'll be speaking with Nat Gant, Professor and Associate Dean for Academic Affairs, as well as the co-director of the Center for Ethical Formation and Legal Education Reform at Regent University School of Law. He regularly writes about professional identity, ethics, and other areas of significance to lawyers, law students, and ultimately to clients. Nat, welcome to our show. Thank you, Witt. It's good to be here. Why are ethical considerations so important for lawyers and, in fact, for their clients? Well, ethical considerations affect the lawyer's relationship with the client, the lawyer's ability to represent the client competently and diligently, but also the lawyer's ability to be uh, someone that provides important counsel to their clients. Lawyers are thought of often as just providing legal insight, but a good lawyer should also be a good counselor to his or her client and re reflect not only legal issues, but the other non-legal considerations that, that can affect the legal problems the client may bring to them. Now, the ethical rules in Anglo-American law have developed over centuries, and in fact, were, many of them were already in place before the United States was even founded. But in terms of uh, the ethical, of teaching the ethics to students, why does Regent stand out, or what does Regent do differently than other schools? Well, to answer that question, I'll give you a quick uh, backstory. So right before I started teaching at Regent, I graduated with a seminary degree from Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. And was looking for an opportunity where I could combine my uh, seminary training with my law degree. I'd graduated from law school earlier. And Regent uh, opened the door for me to teach there. And I've been teaching there now for, for tw oh, almost 20 years. And teaching legal ethics in a Christian environment is, a, is an awesome opportunity because they're professional standards that all lawyers have to uh, comply with by their state. Their state Supreme Court will adopt professional standards. But to be able to talk about those standards from a Christian perspective and to encourage the students that those ethical st standards are the minimum standards. They're just the standards you need to comply with not to be disbarred or have some type of discipline. But as Christians, we're called to do more than that. We're called to be excellent advocates for our client. We're called to do what we're doing, as Colossians 3.23 says, as unto the Lord. So to be able to talk to my students about not just following the rules, but actually taking it kind of up a notch, so to speak, to reflect on what does it mean to be a Christian attorney is is very powerful, and I enjoy it very much. And does that benefit the lawyer and the client? Well, I, I definitely think it does. Um, one of the things that got me interested in, particularly the non-legal counseling aspect that you mentioned at the outset, was 
this notion of integrity, the virtue of integrity. And I remember when I was in seminary, my third year, so right when I was getting to graduate, I read an article on integrity. And a lot of us say we want to be a – hopefully most of us think we want to be a person of integrity. Um, but uh, if you ask different people how to define that term, they may define it a little bit differently. And one of the things that really struck me is a person of integrity integrates all aspects of, of their life into a unified whole. So as a Christian, our identity is first and foremost in Christ. So as a Christian attorney, our identity in Christ should affect how we represent our clients, how we interact with our coworkers, how we interact with the court system. The same thing for a Christian law student. That should affect how that student studies law, prepares for the practice of law. And so being in a Christian environment, teaching ethics in a Christian environment, I can challenge my students to say, okay, you say that your faith is important to you. Let's reflect on how that is going to affect the ethical decisions beyond what the rules say, the ethical decisions that you make in representing your clients and, again, interacting with the bar. Well, I know in my own personal practice that there are clients that come to me or potential clients that come to me and say uh, that I want you to do X. And whatever X is, is maybe legal and maybe meets the, the ethical standards and the rules but is really bad. I mean, it's really mm -hmm. it's it's a bad thing to do. And I have because I have this Christian belief uh, in my soul, um, I have no trouble saying no. I don't care how much you're going to pay me. No. Uh, and I think that's that helps you and it helps uh, the client. Uh, now, with respect to uh, non-legal considerations, there are times obviously the lawyer has to give the client. Uh, all the legal ins and outs in order for the client to make decisions. But what are those cases where you might have to give a non-legal advice or non-legal counsel? Well, to go back to what you said, I think that being a person of integrity and relating your faith to your practice and maybe like you're saying, saying no to the client, relating to your, your question now, that gives you an opportunity uh, depending on the dynamic with a client, of course, but gives you an opportunity to discuss those non-legal considerations with the, with the client to say that I understand that you're what you're proposing, and legally we might be able to work work through that. But for these other reasons, I think that's probably not a good course of conduct. And more and more, and this is even apart from a, a Christian perspective, more and more, I think what we add as value as lawyers is not purely technical information. Because if you think about it, nowadays with the rise of the internet, it's very easy to get the law in terms of a statute or a regulation. What's really important for us as lawyers is to provide our clients with good counsel. And good counsel is more than just, again, telling them what the law says, but good counsel could be, for example, um, not only moral considerations, but business considerations, reputational considerations, um, economic considerations. Uh, uh, problem-solving, strategic problem-solving situations. Now, what's the challenge for us as a lawyer is we're not trained in all those areas. Uh, we're not an expert in all those areas, and so we have to be careful because we don't want to provide incompetent, non-legal advice. At the same time, uh, our clients uh, understandably desire us to be problem-solvers with them. And so part of that is to give them good counsel, and I would argue again, part of that is to give them good moral counsel because that can affect how they make their decisions. You're listening to Lawyers for Jesus. I'm Whit Brisky of the law firm of Malk and Baker. If you missed part of this episode or want to hear other Lawyers for Jesus interviews, visit MalkBaker.com. 
You can also subscribe to our Religious Liberty newsletter and follow us on Facebook and Twitter for legal updates with a biblical perspective. Today, we've been speaking with Nat Gant of Regent University School of Law about legal ethics. And uh, I know for in my own practice that many of my clients are small businesses uh, or small churches, and they don't have a lot of money to hire some high-priced consultant. Uh, so the people that they call for kind of business advice and, you know, what should I do, are their lawyer and their accountant who may have very long-term uh, mm -hmm. relationships. I mean, I've had relationships with clients that have gone on for 40 or 45 years at this point. So these kinds of questions, what are the limitations in terms of what the lawyer can do? Well, there's a, a rule of professional conduct. It's an ABA rule. Um, and most states have a very similar rule that says a lawyer may counsel clients on non-legal considerations, including social, moral, political. And it's interesting, there's nothing that says in the rules themselves that you can only go to this point in, in that non-legal counsel. So the rules, in my opinion, unfortunately, are not very clear in terms of what those limits are. We have to look at other rules in the professional conduct standards that talk about, for example, lawyers are to be competent, they're to keep client information confidential. If they provide law-related services that aren't distinct from their legal services, they have to comply with all the professional conduct rules in those law-related services. So, for example, if you advised your client on a business consideration and you didn't make clear to the client that this is a business this is business counsel, not legal counsel, then you could be uh, subject to the normal rules for, for lawyers regarding competence for your business advice. So I think as lawyers, we need to be very careful when we, again, uh, it's so important to provide good counsel to our clients. And as you say, count, clients are expecting that. At the same time, we want to be mindful when we're not an expert in an area to provide uh counsel to our clients, but to let them know that I'm not, if you're not a CPA, I'm not a CPA or I'm not a licensed therapist and things like that. Yeah, I, I uh, I'm trying to be careful about that. And if they ask me for some investment advice, I tell them, you know, I, I uh, bought uh, a nuclear power stock three days before Three Mile Island. So yeah. don't, don't listen to me when it comes to investment advice. But sometimes uh, what I like to do is sort of ask the the client questions rather than say, here, do this, but what would happen if, or what do you think about? And that tends to, first of all, I'm not giving them direct advice, but I'm sort of leading them in the right direction. And if I could just interject, and you're also being a problem solver. So you may not have the expertise to give the financial advice, but you're helping them. You're being a good counselor to your client because you're saying, please consider these other, other issues as well as you move forward. Yeah. And one other thing you can do, I think, Nat, is to, um, suggest other people that they can exactly to, exactly who may have the 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 ability and the um knowledge to give the answers to these questions and the rules actually talk about that there's a comment that talks about that's a great way for a lawyer to provide counsel is to refer the client to another professional do you think the lawyer has a, a problem if the person to whom he's referred the thing uh, messes up well, that's a, that's a great question. I think that um, if you're talking about uh, the person providing non-legal services, um, I, I don't think that they could be held to responsibility for we'll, that. We'll but cover more after the break. Coming up, we'll talk further with Matt Gant of Regent University School of Law about the ethical considerations involved in the attorney-client relationship. I'm Whit Brisky, and this is Lawyers for Jesus. 
you ever thought of Jesus as a lawyer? Sometimes he used the law to make a difference, and so must we. In Jesus in the Courtroom, John Mott shows you how you can engage the legal system for the good of his world. Jesus in the Courtroom shows you how to get involved in issues like abortion, religious freedom, and much more. If you're concerned for your community, read Jesus in the Courtroom. More at JesusInTheCourtroom.com. Welcome back to Lawyers for Jesus. I'm Whit Brisky, an attorney at Malkin Baker, a law firm based in Chicago, which serves churches, ministries, businesses, and individuals in their legal needs. If you missed the first part of this show and want to listen online, go to malkbaker.com forward slash radio. Today, we've been speaking with Nat Gant, a professor, associate dean for academic affairs and co-director of the Center for Ethical Formation and Legal Education Reform at Regent University School of Law about legal ethics. And I cut you off at the end of the last segment. Uh, I had asked you whether a lawyer could be responsible if a person to whom uh, the lawyer referred that a client um, did not do his job properly. And I was thinking there, there's one standard in the rules that talks about if you refer a, a client to another lawyer and you take a fee that you assume responsibility if you split the fee. Um, if you refer the client to another uh, non-legal professional, I would say as, as long as you are very clear in your disclaimers that there isn't a specific endorsement, that you're just providing options to the client in, in your capacity as being a good counselor, I think that unless, again, there was something specific that you did in terms of improper oversight with that non-legal, with the person that you recommend the, the client to, I think that recommendations themselves would be okay and, and again, encouraged. Okay, I, I suppose it might. Your answer might be different if I knew, for example, that a particular accountant had uh, been sued many times for messing up. Then probably, no matter what I did, I might be stuck. Right, right. I mean, if you had, right, if you were, you could have some type of negligent misrepresentation or omission by not full disclosure to the client. But if if there was nothing to that effect that you were aware of, and something happened after the fact, I don't think a referral alone would would cause you problems. Now, uh, we were talking earlier about uh, how Regent integrates faith with teaching the law. And I wonder if you could be more specific about uh, how Regent does that. Well, I was reflecting on your, your earlier question. And just to provide a little bit of background, uh, about now about 12 years ago, some reports came out. Uh, the Educating Lawyers report by the Carnegie Foundation and another report called Best Practices that surveyed legal education across the country. And one of the things that they, they came up with, they said that law schools across the board are doing a poor job of helping students to develop a professional identity, helping students to develop the character, the integrity that's important for the practice of law. And at Regent, when that, those reports came out, they were not Christian reports. When those secular reports came out, we were very interested in that because that's something that's been at the heart of what we've been about for years. And just some particular things that we do, we started uh, really in some ways in response to those reports. We started being even more intentional about helping our students um, integrate their faith into their career choices, into their ethical decision making, not just not just a sense of broad vocation. And so one of the things that we have now is that the, our, in our first year, we have a required course called Foundations of Practice, where every student um, talks about the, how they're going to uh, uh, draw upon the gifts and the talents that the Lord has given them 
in their in their vocational calling and how that's going to affect actually which particular career they intend to to pursue and they're to draft a career development plan on the basis of that. And then one other thing that I do in my professional responsibility class, actually I got this idea from another uh, author, but have, have integrated it into our faith perspective, is that every student that takes my professional responsibility class has to draft a personal philosophy of lawyering, a paper in which they talk about how their faith is going to affect their ethical decision-making. I actually asked them to give me a decision-making framework because the rules, as you know, as an attorney, the rules can be very vague at times and not give you a lot of direction as to how to solve a, or resolve a potential issue. So I asked them to talk about when the rules are gray, how is your faith going to affect your decision? How is that going to affect maybe mentors or counselors that you look to in helping you make the decision? How, how is scripture going to inform um, um, making those decisions in those contexts. And again, being in a Christian environment at Regent and having that um, requirement, it's a requirement for the class to ask students to draft the paper, I think from my perspective, enriches their experience. Yeah, I, I agree. And let me just tell you that we have hired Regent graduates. And if a Regent graduate resume comes across my desk, it usually floats toward the top. Uh, Great. And because you know we like what, what you guys are doing. And it sure helps us. You're listening to Lawyers for Jesus. I'm Whit Brisky of Malkin Baker, and we're talking to Nat Gant of Regent University School of Law about legal ethics. And turning now to kind of a, uh, an issue which is really at the top of some lawyers' uh, consciousness in regards to ethics, uh, the ABA and some state ethical uh, agencies are at least discussing or considering imposing rules which might be difficult for a biblical-believing Christian to follow in terms of uh, the ability to refuse a particular engagement or even limiting the activities of uh, lawyers outside of the practice of law based upon uh, concerns about LBGT rights. Would you like to comment on that? Uh, a couple of years ago, a few years ago, the ABA adopted a rule 8.4G. And as you referenced a, a minute ago, um, the process works like this for those in your audience that might not know. The ABA adopts a, a model rule, and then the respective states can choose to adopt that rule, incorporate that, tweak it, however they see, see fit. Um, to date, very few states have adopted this particular rule. It's 8.4G. But as you mentioned, the rule talks about the fact that it would be it is professional misconduct for a lawyer to harass or discriminate um, individuals in the in conduct related to the practice of law along several defined characteristics, including LGBT issues, and um, it has raised a lot of concerns uh, to this point, again, only a handful of states have, have adopted it. Many states have rejected it because they feel like the rule is too broad. The, the language in the rule that is most concerning for me is it talks about uh, harassment or discrimination in conduct related to the practice of law. And in the comments to that rule, that conduct is defined very broadly. It could relate to speaking at a conference. It could relate to speaking in a CLE. It could relate to being involved in on a board of a particular organization. So that is concerning. But the specific issue about accepting or declining representation, my interpretation of the rule is, uh, is narrower than some of my colleagues because the rule does say that um, it doesn't inhibit an attorney's ability to accept or decline representation in accordance with another rule. It's kind of a little bit of a Rubik's Cube here. Right. But the other rule 
um, if you kind of dig deep, the other rule says that if you have a strongly held personal uh, interest, and that could include a political belief or a moral belief, that would rise to the level of creating a personal conflict of interest. In other words, if you feel so strongly about a particular issue that um, – and again, a moral issue could be a part of that, that, that you could – as a lawyer could not objectively – uh, represent that client, then that creates a personal conflict of interest. And this new rule, 8.4G, doesn't override that. Okay. Okay. Does that do following uh, it, what? It does. It does. Uh, on the other hand, uh, there was a uh, recently a hearing uh, before the Senate on confirmation of a judge for the circuit court where the, the prospective judge was asked questions about speeches he'd made uh, in years past, which may be uh, um, viewed as being contrary to LBGT rights, and and uh, this this has become an issue. I definitely believe it's it's become an issue, and I think that there was some debate about how exactly this this rule should be worded, and it was um, that this exception, in a sense, was carved out. But you're exactly right that um, it's something to be concerned about moving forward. Yeah. Now. Um, I want to ask in the couple of minutes we have left, uh, we're speaking mostly to clients or prospective clients. What should they know about talking to lawyers about non-legal matters? That's a a great question. I think when a a client comes to see a lawyer, and you referenced this a few minutes ago, um, in, in the client's mind, I mean, it depends on the client, of course, I'm generalizing, but in the client's mind, they have a problem. And maybe some of it's a legal problem, but it just may be more broadly speaking a problem. And they're come like you're saying in, in particular situations that you face, they're coming to a lawyer to help the lawyer solve that problem. And so I think it's it's I would encourage clients to um, engage their lawyer on the on the full breadth of the problem that they feel like the lawyer might be able to to address. Now and understand that goes back to what we were saying earlier is that lawyers are not experts. They're not. Uh, trained most of them, not licensed counselors, not financial planners, but to engage a lawyer um, on those on those levels so that the lawyer then can have a holistic view of the problem and be able to provide better counsel to you as a client. Um, lawyers were, uh, I wrote an article about the fact that when lawyers, when the legal education started in the early 1800s in this, in this country, this notion of lawyers as being counselors at law, we've kind of faded away from that a little bit, but that was primary. And I think in a lot of ways, and this goes back to really where we started, as lawyers, we need to return to that because we can't just be information disseminators. Uh, we need to provide judgment, practical judgment, wisdom, insight, and counsel to our clients in a way that ultimately helps them moving forward. Yeah, and, and I think it's very hard for at least the lawyer in my kind of practice where my clients tend to be my friends because I've had long-term relationships with them. It's very hard not to be able to branch out and give a a description of the entire uh, problem. Nat, thank you for speaking with us today. How can people learn more about both your work and Regent University School of Law? Well, the Regent website is regent.edu. And it was referenced earlier that the center that I co-direct, and this, and we, we talk about a lot in the center, the professional formation, professionalism of our students. That's the Center for Ethical Formation and Legal Education Reform, Kefler, C-E-F-L-E-R dot org. All right. If you have a legal need or a question and want the perspective of a local Christian attorney, contact us at Malkin Baker. You can reach us at 312-726-1243 or at malkbaker.com. 
That's M-A-U-C-K-B-A-K-E-R.com. Visit our website and subscribe to our Religious Liberty newsletter with legal updates or call us and mention Lawyers for Jesus for a free consultation. Thank you, Nat, and thanks for listening. I'm Whit Brisky, attorney at Malkin Baker, and this is Lawyers for Jesus. Gonna have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed, you're gonna have to serve somebody.